Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. It's man-to-man coverage. This is the PFT PM Podcast. And now, your host, Mike Florio. It's a Tuesday edition of the PFTPM podcast. Michael David Smith on board as well. Very simple format for today. Awards coming out of week three. Then we're going to answer the best of the questions that have been asked. This is not an answer every question day like I did on Friday. This is you got to bring it with a good question or I'm going to scroll right on past it. So without further ado, MDS, welcome back. How are you? I'm doing well, Mike. How are you? I am doing great. I didn't go back and check and see how we did in our picks this past week, but because we picked the exact same winners of every game, whatever our record was, we we pushed. You're still a couple games ahead, or one, or whatever it was. As I'm in the lead for the season, I'll take that gladly, so I hope we pick the teams all year. My my vague recollection is we were wrong Thursday night. We were very good in the one o'clock window Eastern time on Sunday. We were horrible in the four o'clock Eastern time window on Sunday. And then we got the next two primetime games right. The Rams over the Browns and then ultimately Chicago over Washington. So our awards now from the full body of games, all 16 games played. First, the player of the week, MDS, I'll let you go first with that one. Well, I'm going to take one that may seem kind of obvious, but that doesn't mean he can't be picked. And that's Patrick Mahomes. And I find it remarkable that Patrick Mahomes had an all-time great season last year, and he's playing better this year any way you slice it. He has better stats. He's doing it with a depleted supporting cast. You know, last year, I think a lot of people were saying, well, he's in the perfect situation for what he likes to do with Kareem Hunt, with Tyreek Hill doesn't have those guys around anymore. He's putting up better numbers than he was a year ago. He is a phenomenal young player, the best we've seen under the NFL in years. Yeah, and I agree with you. And the one big impression he had on me, I spoke to him after the game on Sunday for about seven or eight minutes. He's the exact same guy that he was coming out of Texas Tech. None of this success has changed him in any way. He's not big time. He doesn't talk differently. He doesn't act differently. And he's going to get that huge contract after this season, $40 million per year or more. And I have a feeling he's never going to change. ton of endorsements, big money coming. He's always going to be the same guy. And I think it's just the influence his parents have on him to keep him humble, keep him grounded. And he just he loves football. He is who he is. And I don't see that ever changing. And I think I recently saw on your Twitter feed an observation that I think is accurate. I think it was a family member that suggested to you that Patrick Mahomes could end up throwing for 100,000 yards. And it's not all that crazy. He could get 100,000 yards if he plays long enough. Yeah, that that was my uncle who pointed that out to me. Shout out to Uncle Zach. But uh, it's absolutely right. I mean, there is no reason to think this guy couldn't average 5,000 yards a year until he's Tom Brady's age. And if he does that, that's 100,000 yards. And 100,000 just sounds crazy but it, it it's completely realistic for Patrick Mahomes. Yeah, and you just wonder, is he going to get the 6,000 yards at some point? I mean, the numbers are incredible. He can't be stopped. And one thing that they did this year 
they knew that teams were going to study what they did last year and try to take away their explosive plays. So they anticipated what defenses were going to do and anticipated the openings that would come from what defenses were going to do to take away the big plays they had last year. And ultimately, it doesn't matter. You can plan for Patrick Mahomes all you want. You still have to stop him in real time. And all the X's and O's go out the window when you are dealing with a superior talent who plays the position like no one we have seen, no one I've ever seen in my lifetime, and we may never see anyone like that in the future. Yeah, that's absolutely right. We we aren't really sure what we can expect from Patrick Mahomes going forward because we haven't seen anything like this before. But there's absolutely no reason to think, well, it's just a fluke or, well, defenses are going to catch up with what they're doing. He looks like he's going to be a phenomenal football player for many, many years to come. My player of the week didn't have spectacular numbers, but they were good enough. More than 100 yards rushing for Dalvin Cook, who now in my mind has entered as the Vikings starting running back, the higher level of elite running back. And it's a moving target. There are only two or three of them at any given time. And it has gone from Ezekiel Elliott, Saquon Barkley, and Christian McCaffrey to Elliott, Cook, and McCaffrey, not necessarily in that order. But Barkley falls off with that high ankle sprain that puts him out of action for four to eight weeks. Right now, the best running backs, the best of the best running backs in the NFL, Elliott Cook and McCaffrey. Cook, the first Vikings running back to have 100-plus yards in each of the first three games of a season. Pretty impressive considering they had Adrian Peterson all those years and guys like Chuck Foreman back in the days of running the football, not passing the football, at least not as much as they do now. And there's something about Cook when you watch him play. When he gets the ball... There's a man among boys quality where he just explodes into the hole, through the hole, into the second level, and he's constantly moving faster and, than everyone else. And, and it, just, it just jumps out. In the same way that Patrick Mahomes' quarterback talent jumps out as different, Dalvin Cook's running talent is jumping out as something different than what we're used to seeing. There's nothing you know, flashy like the no-look pass or the sidearm pass or the, the crazy stuff we've seen from Mahomes that works. But but there's just a quality that Cook currently has that others don't, especially because it's a lot of outside zone runs and he gets the ball and he gets to the edge and he's just gone. And, and, and look, he's got to stay healthy. It was week four in 2017 against the Lions where he did a cut and it was a non-contact ACL tear, and you worry about injury on any given play and every given play with a running back. Look what happened to Saquon Barkley. But Cook, I think, on his way to a special season, if he can stay healthy, exactly on pace for 2,000 yards through three games. And I don't see his role changing. I don't see his production changing. He's averaging 6.9 yards per carry, and the Vikings need to just keep feeding him and feeding him if they want to be as good as they can be, MDS. Yeah, and I don't think his role will change in large part because I think what they're doing is exactly what Mike Zimmer has been calling for, which is he wants an offense that runs through the running back. And it's kind of a weird way to build your team to give Kirk Cousins the big contract, Stephen Diggs the big contract, Adam Thielen a big contract, and then say, but we want to be a running football team. I mean, I think it's valid to question whether the Vikings – had the right plan in place, but however they got there, they are currently playing the kind of offense that Mike Zimmer wants, which is run the ball well 
and don't really pass very much because you don't need to pass very much because you get out to an early lead, you're running the ball, your defense plays well. That's the kind of team Mike Zimmer wants to have. I don't know that they went about it the right way in terms of the personnel, but they do have ultimately what Mike Zimmer wants, and that is to keep feeding Dalvin Cook. And I think if he stays healthy, I think he'll probably lead the league in carries, lead the league in yards, because that's what they really want to do. And I think he'll lead the league in yards, but not carries because of how much he's gaining with each and every carry. That's what's amazing to me. But you're right. You could get a quarterback for a lot less than $28 million a year to repeatedly hand the ball off to Dalvin Cook, which is what Kirk Cousins is doing. But you got to credit Mike Zimmer for, and this is something he explained to me several years ago at the scouting combine. His dad was a high school football coach, and every year the talent was different, which meant every year the approach was different. And this year they've got, between the coaching staff, the talent on offense the talent on defense they've got the formula in place to run the ball and play good defense and pass when they have to and sometimes when they want to off a of play action so that's what they're running with no matter what they're paying Diggs and Thielen and Cousins and yes it doesn't make a whole lot of sense and dollar for dollar Dalvin Cook is a hell of a value but at the same time it's working and I think it's going to continue to work. And their first big test is this weekend. Well, it's their second big test. The first big test was week two at Green Bay, and they failed. They've got to start winning games on the road that they should not win. And they've got some other big ones coming up. They've got at Chicago this weekend. They'll play at Dallas. They'll play at Kansas City. They'll play at Detroit. They'll play at Seattle. They'll play at L.A. against the Chargers. They've got to win half of those seven road games or more, four and three or better, if they truly want to be a contender in the NFC. And I think they've got the talent to do it. The question is, can they actually execute week in and week out and stick to that game plan and not give in to the temptation to run the ball, especially when they fall behind? They gave in too much in the fourth quarter of the week two loss to the Packers to the temptation to throw and not just keep running the ball and running the ball with Dalvin Cook. All right, time for the rookie of the week for week three. MDS, who do you have? Okay, well, if I chose the most obvious player of the week, I'm going to choose the least obvious rookie of the week, and that is Michael Dieter, who I think probably a lot of people don't even know who he is, but he is a third-round pick of the Dolphins. He started the game at left guard, moved to left tackle after an injury. And, of course, we know left tackle in Miami after they traded Laramie Tunsil uh, is a question mark. Played very well at left tackle, moving there middle of the game. Wasn't where he had been practicing. And the only thing I can say that would represent any type of progress for the Dolphins this season at all is start to identify players who might be part of the core of a good team down the road. Because we know they're not going to be a good team this year. Nothing is going to change this year. They're going to be probably the worst team in the league, if not the worst, one of the worst. But if they can identify some young players who could be part of a good team in the future, that is what they're looking for with success. And I think Michael Dieter, their third-round offensive lineman who showed he can play both guard and tackle, I think that's what the Dolphins are looking for. So when you when you it might often you might scoff at choosing a player who was on a team that got destroyed on Sunday and has gotten destroyed three straight weeks, but that's what the Dolphins are looking for. They're looking for young guys who can be part of this team when it's a good team maybe two, three years from now. And I think he really showed by playing both guard and tackle, doing both effectively, that he might be one of these players who's part of something in the future. 
And to the extent that the Dolphins are tanking for Tua Tonga-Vailoa, the Alabama quarterback, one of the big comments that people will make in response to that is, who the hell is going to protect him next year? Dieter, one of the guys who will keep Tonga-Vailoa in one piece if that's the direction they go. I personally think it's a two-year tank, and next year's draft will be about beefing up the offensive line so they can get Trevor Lawrence from Clemson in 2021. But either way, you're right. They need to find young guys who can get the job done at every round of the draft. They have to hit on as many of these lottery tickets as possible, and they're going to have a lot more lottery tickets because of all the moves they've made and the extra draft picks they have picked up, especially in the first two rounds. Well, you went obvious with the player of the week. I'm going to go obvious with the rookie of the week. I thought about being cute. I thought about Terry McLaurin because he's the first rookie to ever have five catches and one touchdown in his first three NFL games. But but we got to give some love to Daniel Jones, the Giants rookie quarterback who has checked all the boxes, has passed the eyeball test, has come in and revolutionized the Giants offense to the extent that, that they can now run a modern offense because they have a quarterback who is mobile, who can do the things that Eli Manning was maybe too old to do or never could do when he was young enough to do them. And it was a phenomenal performance. They should have lost. They should be sending Bruce Arians a fruit basket or it, you know he would probably prefer a, a couple bottles of, of whiskey or something like that. But, but whatever he would like, send it to him because but for his mismanagement of the delay of game call and that goofy justification that he gave, the Buccaneers win the game with a late field goal and it takes some of the shine off of Jones' debut. Regardless, there's now hope long-term at the Giants quarterback position. He came in and he proved it, and now they can build the team around him. They're like the Dolphins, but without the quarterback. Their first clear piece for the future is the quarterback, along with Saquon Barkley, the running back they got last year. And now those are the two guys who form the nucleus going forward, and they fill in the spots, and maybe they can attract some free agents, MDS, that they otherwise wouldn't because you come into New York and you're playing with a guy who you know is going to be there at quarterback longer than you're ever going to be there when you sign as a free agent. Yeah, and, you know, we probably have a tendency to focus too much with a quarterback on whether the team won or lost. I mean, if the Buccaneers had made that field goal, that would not be a reflection on Daniel Jones at all. And yet, if they had, we probably wouldn't be talking about Daniel Jones quite as much this week. But either way, he had a phenomenal first game. I really like the fact that he ran that touchdown in because – it, it kind of showed that he's the type of young quarterback who wants the game to be on him at the end. Fourth down, the game is on the line. I want to take responsibility of this game myself. I don't want anyone determining it except me. I like that kind of confidence. I think that is a good thing for a young quarterback to have. And the Giants have to be very pleased. A lot of people question them for the decision to draft Daniel Jones. Certainly through one game, it looks like a smart decision. And I think one other important factor that that is important, people think that eh, it really doesn't matter, but it does. When in the second quarter they were down 28 to 10 and he went on a tirade dropping F-bombs, sometimes that's what you got to do as a quarterback. And Eli Manning isn't wired to do that. He's not wired to lead the team vocally. Marcus Mariota's like that, and I think it has affected his ability to be the best quarterback he can be. You have to be able to inspire your teammates. You have to be able to hold them accountable as you hold yourself accountable. And that's one of those visceral, intangible qualities that has nothing to do with stats, analytics, X's and O's. This is, can you be the guy that inspires your teammates to be better collectively than they are individually? And Daniel Jones got 
a, a positive review for that by knowing when to go a little bonkos on his teammates and get their attention and get them focused and motivated. And, and that is a huge difference between him and Eli Manning. This guy is bonkos, but that's a good thing sometimes. Yeah, bonkos is good, except when you're uh, spitting coffee all over Kathy Lee's uh, new dress. All right, the, uh, the coach of the week, MDS, who do you have? Well, I'm going back to obvious, but one that's so obvious that I think he sometimes gets overlooked when we talk about coach of the week, coach of the year awards. That's Bill Belichick. And I think sometimes we we kind of forget that Bill Belichick, you know, he's been doing this for 20 years now. Sometimes we forget to mention him when we're talking about the best coaches. But look, the Patriots are playing great, specifically their defensive game plans. They have still not allowed a point in the first half of a game this year. They also, by the way, didn't allow a point in the first half of the Super Bowl, didn't allow a point in the first half of the AFC Championship. They have to go all the way back to the AFC Divisional when they allowed one touchdown to the Chargers to even find a game where they allowed a single point in the first half. Five straight games, first half shutouts, which tells you something about Bill Belichick's first half game plans and and what kind of game plans he comes into games with. I really think that they have this defense playing very well, better than it has played in recent years. And uh, I think this could be a very special Patriots team, very tough team to beat. Yeah, Bill Belichick, the greatest coach of all time in any sport, regardless of what you think of how he is on an interpersonal basis. He had that clunky pregame interview with Dana Jacobson of CBS. I don't care about any of that. I care about results. And this guy has achieved results like no one else. And he could be coach of the year every year. But that award is always given out in relation to how well a team exceeds the generally accepted expectations for the organization going into the season. The expectations are always high for the Patriots. The only time he was coach of the year was the year he took the team to 16-0 and because that grossly exceeds anyone's expectations for any team. So he could be the guy every year. He's the best coach in football by far. And, uh, yeah, it, it does seem a little obvious, but you know what? When you think of great coaching jobs on a given Sunday, you just take for granted that the Patriots were going to win. So you don't think about Bill Belichick as a candidate to be the coach, uh, the best coach for a given slate of games. All right, I, I, I have to do this, and I hate to be repetitive, and I'd like to be mixing it up, but, but I got to give some props to Pat Shermer, the Giants head coach, for recognizing that the time was right to move to Daniel Jones, for not being afraid of acknowledging implicitly that they screwed up by not making Daniel Jones the week one starter, because I think that's the clear message for making him the week three starter. They should have made him the week one starter. Maybe they should have cut Eli Manning and avoided $11.5 million that became fully guaranteed as of week one. But for Shermer to, number one, be willing to make the change, number two, able to convince John Mara, the Giants' co-owner, to do it, which is the equivalent of taking away a five-year-old's blankie once and for all because Mara was not going to give up Eli Manning. Somehow, Pat Shermer, probably with the help of Dave Gettleman, the GM of the team, got Mara to do it. And then to incorporate into the playbook aspects that you couldn't use with Eli Manning to diversify the offense and really bring it into what you know where the modern NFL is because it's not your, your standard statuesque pocket passer who just can't perform at the level that was necessary and required for the Giants. So got to give Pat Shermer some love. Not that long ago, I was 
openly questioning whether or not he's simply a pretty good offensive coordinator who keeps parlaying those performances into head coaching jobs like Norv Turner used to do. Pat Shermer's masterstroke, getting the flip to Daniel Jones, getting Daniel Jones ready, and having him looking like a seasoned veteran right out of the gates, MDS. Yeah, and of course, benching Eli Manning cost Pat Shermer's predecessor his job. I mean, when Ben McAdoo benched Eli Manning, the next week he was fired. Uh, so this is a decision. You better get it right if you're going to bench Eli Manning. You better know the right time to do it. You better know you have the right backup quarterback in place to do it. And Pat Shermer did it at the right time, has the right backup quarterback in place. And I agree with you. Good move by him. And it was a gutsy move. You know, it, it's not it probably seems less gutsy than it really was to the average fan who's thinking, well, of course, you know, Eli Manning hasn't played well and Daniel Jones is sixth overall pick. But like you said, when the owner of the team has made clear how much he loves Eli Manning and wants Eli Manning to ride off into the sunset, it's tough to go to your boss and say, you know what, it's time. I know you have plans for Eli Manning. I have plans for this football team that don't include Eli Manning. And it's not an easy thing to do. And he did it right, and I think Pat Shermer deserves a lot of respect for that. Yeah, just a couple of weeks before the regular season began, John Mara told reporters he wants Eli Manning to play the whole year. He wants him to play as long as they're in playoff contention. That was the plan as reported just before the season began. It's Eli's for as long as the Giants are alive. And then after two weeks, they realized we aren't going to be alive for very long. If we stick with this guy, the other guy is better. I wish they had made the decision to do it week one in large part because I was reading the tea leaves back in late April, early May, and I was saying this this guy should be the week one starter. If he performs like the sixth overall pick in the draft should perform. And if Eli Manning continues to perform the way Eli Manning has performed, and if it's a fair competition, he will be the week one starter. So wisdom, what did I say last week? Wisdom often never comes at all. It's better that it come late. And it came two weeks too late for the New York Giants, but at least they're making the most of it. All right. Call of the week time. This can be anything. This can be well, any of these can be anything or anyone, but, but this is one that can be good or bad or neutral or just stands out. MDS, what do you have? Well, I'm going to go with John Harbaugh, the Ravens head coach, going for it. And when I say going for it, I mean going for it on four fourth downs against the Chiefs, going for it on three two-point conversions against the Chiefs. And although it didn't work in the sense that they lost the game, I thought he made a great case for himself the next day in his press conference when people were asking, why'd you do that? Why'd you keep going for it? I thought he made a great case about how He studies it with his analytics people. He talks it over with his staff. He looks at the specific matchups with the Chiefs and what they're going to need to do to win that game. And I thought his reasoning was sound. And just because those two-point conversions didn't work, that doesn't change the fact that he made the right call based on the information available to him at the time. So I got to give John Harbaugh credit for that. Yeah, my only concern about this is, and the explanation he gave yesterday about going for two went down by 11 points after a touchdown, the idea that if you get it, then a touchdown and a single point after and a field goal allows you to win, not force overtime. And that reminds me of the theory that I think Doug Peterson has made popular, MDS, with when you're down 14, go for two after you score the touchdown, puts you down by six if you're successful, and then the next time around, what you do is you you score the touchdown you kick the one pointer and you win without having to go to overtime so I I get that I understand that my concern is 
if your short yardage fourth down plays aren't working, if your go for it on on or go for two rather plays aren't working, uh, and and you're moving down the stack of the plays that you like that you have ready to go for the game. If the plays you really like the best haven't worked, maybe option number three, option number four, option number five isn't going to work. And I think that's part of the analysis that you have to bring to this. I'm not a fan of saying I'm going to go for two all the time. I'm going to go for it on fourth and less than five all the time. I think the best approach is to be truly unpredictable so the defense never knows what you're going to do coming out of a touchdown. Are they going for one? Are they going for two? I don't know. Let's see who they send out on the field. Uh, Are they going for it on fourth down or not? I don't know. Let's see if they send the punter out. I don't think you want to be completely predictable either way. Yeah, and it's an interesting thing. You know, we're we're up on 25 years since the NFL adopted the two-point conversion. There has still never been a team that made the two-point conversion the default, that we're going to go for two most of the time and only kick when one point is obviously all that we need. Um, I would love to see some team try it someday, but I think what's holding teams back from ever doing that is exactly what you're saying, which is they feel like they have a limited number of really good two-point plays, and they don't want to use them all right at the start of the season. And, and of course, you hope that over the course of the season you're going to score 40, 50, 60 touchdowns, you may not feel like you have 40, 50, 60 plays where you're confident you're going to gain two yards. You may have 10 plays like that, and over the course of the season, maybe you're going to go for two five times, go for it on fourth and two five times. That's when you want to use those plays, and you don't feel like you can use them every single time. And, you know, I've talked to people in the NFL because I've been pushing the idea that the XFL is using, which they actually stole from us, which is fine by me, the two-point conversion shootout to resolve overtime where you've got 44 guys on the field, 22 at each end, going back and forth with two-point conversion tries. And I think the XFL's approach is going to be three opportunities each to determine who wins the game. And the argument is, wait a minute, by the time we get to overtime – We've already used all of our short yardage plays. We've used our two-point conversions most likely. What the hell are we going to do? How many of these plays do we have to have ready for a given game if we have to budget for three, four, or five of them in overtime? So that is a real dynamic, and I think that's a factor that needs to go into the entire VAT when deciding – are we going to play the percentages? Are we going to follow the analytics? Are we going to do the the uh, the standard all the time, go for two, go for it on fourth and short, or are, you, or are we not? And I just think true unpredictability is the best way to keep the opponent on its heels. All right, my call of the week, um, it was significant when it happened, and I think it became more significant the next day when the head coach who did it explained generally his deficiencies when it comes to play calling. And it's Freddie Kitchens with a fourth and nine call with the game on the line from the 40 or thereabouts of the L.A. Rams calling a draw play that went for two yards. Now, the conversation the next day focused more on the failure to call a run first and goal from the L.A. four yard line with less than a minute to play and all three timeouts in Cleveland's back pocket. But Freddie Kitchens being way too candid about his inner monologue, saying that I'm, I'm new at this, I'm learning this, I'm, I'm not as good as I'm eventually going to be when it comes to calling plays. That was alarming to me because, number one, it isn't all that difficult. Number two, you've called plays before. Number three, you've been around coaching football for most of your adult life. So 
I, I, I think it just exposed to me and confirmed the concern I've had about the Browns from the moment Freddie Kitchens got the job. The expectations for this team have been way too high because no matter what talent you have on the field, your coach is over his skis. He admits he's over his skis. How's he going to deal with adversity? If he, if he doesn't know how to deal with calling plays in crunch time, how's he deal with the locker room of players who are starting to get upset? What if OBJ's starting to get a little bit upset because he's not getting the football because the game plan's not designed to feature him? How's he going to deal with maybe a little fight between defense and offense because the defensive players are saying, hey, we're holding up our end of the bargain. What the hell are you guys doing to score points? So this whole I'm new at this line, it, it makes me concerned that the Browns are not going to be ready this year to compete for a playoff berth. And it makes me even more concerned that the whole I'm new at this routine kept Freddie Kitchens from recognizing that throughout the offseason, when the expectations were sky high, he didn't do enough of a job of making sure media and the fans understood tap the brakes, slam the brakes, just because we have Odell Beckham Jr., just because we have Baker Mayfield and Jarvis Landry and Miles Garrett and Denzel Ward and this guy and that guy, and because we finished strong last year, don't expect us to be a playoff team. Don't pencil us in for the postseason. We go to 0-0, zero and, zero and we got a lot to learn, and I've got a lot to learn. And the fact that he didn't pre-position the media and the fans proves how much he has to learn, MDS. Yeah, and look, last year undeniably the Browns offense improved after Hugh Jackson and Todd Haley were both fired and Freddie Kitchens took over. No no one can dispute that, but we've seen it before. Just because you do a good job as a coordinator doesn't mean it carries over to being a head coach. We've all seen good coordinators who aren't ready to be head coaches. We've also seen assistants who we didn't necessarily think of as the best assistant who become good head coaches. They, they, The jobs are related, but they're not the same job. And so far, Freddie Kitchens looks like maybe he's in a little over his head. Now, it's only three games. I'm not saying, you know, pull the plug on him or anything like that. But I do think it's a little bit concerning that the Browns look like underachievers so far through three weeks. And and how much of the underachieving is because Freddie Kitchens isn't doing a good enough job versus maybe just the expectations were too high because they got so much off-season hype. I mean, I think that's a, a valid question to ask, but I would be a little concerned if I'm a Browns fan that maybe Freddie Kitchens is one of those guys who did a good job for half a season as an offensive coordinator that doesn't prove he's ready to be a head coach. And your point about the Coach being an offensive play caller and also being a head coach is a good one. Tony Dungy used to echo that concept when Jason Garrett was struggling with being the big picture decision maker, go for it on fourth down, call a timeout to ice your own kicker, whatever the, may, the case may be. Balancing that with that, that requirement of being in the flow, in the understanding, in the moment as you call one play after another. What's this play? What's the next play? What's a play after that? What are we trying to set the defense up for by doing things a certain way? You have to balance out that very laser-focused one play after another approach as a play caller with the big picture when am I going to call my timeouts? When am I going to go forward on fourth down? How am I going to run these analytics? What you know, and, and it is two different skill sets that get jammed together. Some guys can do it. Some guys can't. And uh, the, the, But in this moment, and I'm not talking about fourth and nine anymore. I'm talking about when you've got the ball first and goal on the four, 
with less than a minute to play and all three timeouts, the big picture issues of being a head coach go away. Because if the clock's running, you're calling timeout, right? Um, now, there may be a point where you get a little bit cute and let it run down, especially if it's going to be a fourth down play. You want to make sure there's only one second left or two seconds left so it's the last play of the game and the Rams don't get the ball back. But I, I, uh, I, I, I just think that he was way too candid in telling the world he's got a lot of learning to do, he's got a lot of work to do, and I think the message that needs to be reiterated to all Browns fans is Reduce your expectations for the Browns this year because Freddie Kitchens is a work in progress as evidenced by how he handled that fourth and nine play and also how he handled those plays at the goal line with the game on the line. All right. Uh, those are the awards for week three. We're going to answer your questions after I remind you that it's be- the beginning of the NFL season and Tide is making sure no one misses football on Sundays. Starring Peyton Manning, this new campaign pits NBC's biggest stars and lineup of fan favorite shows against one another in the ultimate battle, debating which night of the week is the best to do laundry all month long throughout NBC programming. Check out why Manning and the league officially declare a new meaning for the NFL, not for laundry personally i do you know when i do laundry mds when my clothes are dirty that's when i do laundry uh i'm probably gonna get in trouble for this but my wife does all the laundry in our house well and here's the other thing too i'm not here on sundays so i don't need to worry about not doing laundry on sundays i do it when i get home and the clothes are dirty walk them over throw them in put in some tide and off we go all right off we go with answering some of your questions on this tuesday edition of pftpm uh, and again the bar is high i see some here that if i was doing uh, you know the typical podcast i'd answer them but some of these i'm just going to pass over let's start with this this is a question from the pftpm posse account we all agree the miami dolphins are the worst on-field team in the nfl can we also agree that the Washington franchise is the most dysfunctional. How in the hell is Dan Snyder so wealthy when he and the people he hires are so inept? At least it's good for my Cowboys. Again, that's the PFTPM Posse account. The guy that runs it is a big Cowboys fan. Washington is the most dysfunctional team, in my view, MDS in the NFL. I don't care that the Dolphins are worse. The Jets may be worse. Washington is just dysfunction. Dysfunctional teams do dysfunctional things. Bruce Allen's been the team president for 10 years now. I, you know, I, I think they have done... Uh, a series of things that are grossly dysfunctional from how they're handling Trent Williams to how they ran off Scott McLuhan, who was putting together a very good roster as the GM of the team. It's just one thing after another, how they handled Kirk Cousins. Whatever it is, if there's a bad way to do it, that's the way Washington's going to do it. And uh, that's good news for the other 31 teams in the NFL. Yeah, I would agree. And look, if Washington played Miami on a neutral field, I would pick Washington, but again, the, like, like you said, the point isn't right now about which is the worst team. The Dolphins have a plan in place for being a good team down the road. They're not there right now, but they have a plan in place. I don't think you can look at Washington and say they have a plan in place to be a good team down the road. Now, maybe Dwayne Haskins will turn into a great quarterback and and that will get them most of the way there, but... But you just cannot look at this team and say, okay, this is a team that you can see what the path is toward them being contenders. Whereas the Dolphins, you can clearly see the path. They're probably going to have their own first overall pick, high pick probably from the Steelers. We don't know how good a pick from the Texans, but it's a first rounder. Then another first rounder from the Texans. They're going to have a lot of good young players coming in. 
you can see the path in Miami to success. You cannot see that path in Washington. Yeah, I agree with you completely. And I don't know when things are going to change in Washington. The sense is Bruce Allen's got that job as long as he needs it in order to lay the foundation for a new stadium. And then what will Daniel Snyder do after that? Daniel Snyder, as he has gotten deeper and deeper into his tenure as owner of the team, has been far less of a meddler than he was early on. But it hasn't made it any better. I mean, basically... Dan Snyder went from hands-on, dysfunctional owner to a guy who handed off the team to a dysfunctional president who is creating the same problems, making the same bad decisions, and otherwise continuing to run the same once-proud franchise into the ground. All right, next one comes from, again, PFTPM Posse. And this is a good question that needs to be addressed. Is new-slash-old Vikings receiver Laquan Treadwell getting two checks from the team now, one from his salary that was already guaranteed when they cut him, and a check for his new contract? Well, the obvious answer to this one is no. What he's doing is he's working for free because he had guaranteed salary, fully guaranteed for 2019. And there's an offset clause in his contract, which means any money that he earns with another team, the Vikings get a dollar for dollar credit. And for the first time that I can ever remember MDS, a guy with guaranteed money and offset language signs with the team that cut him. So he's working for free for the Vikings. They were paying him. And, you know, that a very interesting debate in the Minnesota front office as they decide how to go about replacing Chad Beebe, who has torn ankle ligaments. Hey, we can sign a guy off the street and pay him a bunch of money, or we can just pay the guy we're paying anyway. We're paying him nothing. Bring him back and let him play football. We already are paying him. And, uh, you know, Michael Crabtree's available now between Crabtree and Laquan Treadwell. Give me Laquan Treadwell because we're already paying him. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's an interesting situation because I can't really recall a team cutting a first round draft pick while he's still on his rookie contract and then bringing him back. I mean, usually when that happens, that means the team has just decided this guy just plain is not good enough. We tried to develop him. We couldn't do it. He's, he's not part of our plan going forward. Turns out the Vikings, they feel a little differently. They felt like he isn't as good as Chad Beebe, but now that Chad Beebe's hurt, he's the next best guy. Let's bring him back. Actually kind of makes sense. He, he spent four years there. He, he knows the, the, the system. He knows what they want. If they didn't have a huge problem with him, it, it kind of actually makes sense to bring him back since it doesn't affect their salary cap anyway. Yeah, very thin at the receiver position. With B.B. Hurt, they had only one guy other than Stephon Diggs and Adam Thielen. A lot of the special teams' work comes from the tailback position, Amir Abdullah, a guy who basically performs the functions that a low-depth chart receiver would handle in special teams. But uh, they needed help, and there he was there, and he's already getting paid, and he knows the personnel, and Laquan Treadwell is back, at least for now. It may be short-term, but he's back at least for now. All right, next one, another PFTPM Posse question. As Dwight Schrute famously said, it's not who you most or least suspect, it's who you most medium suspect. Three weeks into the NFL season, who do you and MDS most medium suspect will be good, i.e. team that is struggling early. Plus, it's time for MDS to join the PFTPM posse. That's your call altogether. For now, what's important is, who do we most medium suspect? A team that isn't 3-0, a team that isn't clearly a great team that can turn it around as the season unfolds and become a real contender. Who's your choice? Well, I'll go with the Carolina Panthers, and the reason is I was so impressed with Kyle Allen. I, I really wasn't 
expecting much out of them. But the way they played in their first game without Cam Newton makes me think this could actually be a team that turns things around a little bit and might be in better shape than we thought. I also, I'm not really sold on the rest of the NFC South. I think the Falcons have underperformed. I was not impressed with the way the Bucks gave away a game that they were in very good position to win. And who knows about the Saints without Drew Brees. Someone's got to come out of that division. I won't be shocked if it's the Panthers. And I would have said I would have been shocked before Sunday's game. Yeah, and that's a great one because... They looked so bad in their first two games, both at home, five days apart, lost them both. It was easy to write them off at that point. But Kyle Allen looked so good in that debut. And it is a low bar that was set by Cam Newton because due to that foot injury, he wasn't able to hit any of his open receivers. And when he would hit an open receiver, it would be behind him. He'd have to make some acrobatic play to catch the ball. Allen was hitting his guys when they were open. And uh, I, I think Carolina now has to be taken seriously, even though they're only one and two. They are tied with the uh, the Falcons and the Bucks in the division. They're one game behind the Saints, and they haven't played the Saints yet, so they'll have an opportunity to close that gap, and the Saints don't have Drew Brees, so maybe the Panthers can make it happen. I'm going to go with the Philadelphia Eagles. They're one and two, but they only had Deshaun Jackson for week one. They're probably not going to have him week four against the Philadelphia Eagles. At some point, they'll have him back. At some point, they'll have Alshon Jeffrey back. As long as Carson Wentz stays healthy, this Eagles team can be a factor. And yeah, they're two games behind the Dallas Cowboys, but they still play the Cowboys twice. So they will have a pair of opportunities to close the gap directly head-to-head against the Dallas Cowboys. And they, they should have won week two at Atlanta. They could have won easily week three at home against the Lions. I think the Eagles are a team, just like last year, we had written them off by the middle of the season, and they scratched and they clawed, and the next thing you knew, they were in the playoffs. The next thing you knew, they nearly beat the Saints in the divisional round to get back to the NFC Championship game for what would have been a second straight year. So I think the Eagles are a team that we need to keep an eye on. That's a team I most medium suspect for potentially a great season. And I also picked them to go to the Super Bowl before the season began, so I can't give up on them right now. All right, uh, Dean Osborne, 42 to channel my inner Bill Parcells regarding Daniel Jones, can we put away the anointing oils for now? It was better than Eli, but that bar was very low. And look, I, I, I'm not going Gardner Minshew on Daniel Jones, you know, and everybody loves Gardner Minshew now, and it's uh, the mustache and the jorts and this and that. I, I just think that for the Giants, they got what they needed. They got the guy that they passed the baton to from Eli Manning. And they have the guy who lays the foundation at the quarterback position going into the future. It doesn't mean it's going to be Joe Montana to Steve Young or Brett Favre to Aaron Rodgers. But it's somebody that they can feel good about and they can build around for the next 5, 7, 10, 15 years, maybe longer. That's what it's about. It's not about putting Daniel Jones in the Hall of Fame. It's about feeling good about your post-Eli Manning quarterback, MDS. Yeah, and you can always say that about any player after his first game that we shouldn't overreact whether he has a great game, a terrible game, or anywhere in between. I just think that people are saying Daniel Jones certainly appears to be the guy that the Giants thought he was when they drafted him, and that is a reason for optimism for a franchise that until we saw how well he played didn't have much reason for optimism. Yeah, absolutely. All right, one more from Dean Osborne, 42. Any scenario in which the Panthers dump cam newton after this season mds i'll let you go first on that one yeah there is and and the scenario is kyle allen plays very well and you know 
who knows how long we don't know how long cam newton is out but if kyle allen plays well enough that they're in the playoffs with kyle allen then yeah i i absolutely think there is that scenario i'm not predicting that's going to happen i think more likely than not cam newton gets his job back when he's healthy but look his contract it his contract doesn't make him hard to move on from they could release him without much dead money i think it would be more likely they would trade him to a team that might redo his deal to to get him for more than just one year but he only has one year left on his contract i think it is possible yes that the panthers could decide that they're going to go with kyle allen and they're going to move on with cam newton the other op- option is cam newton comes back from this injury then either doesn't play well or gets another injury and they start to think he's just never going to get right and they move on from him for that reason so i think it's possible that this is cam newton's last year in carolina yeah and i do too and i said before the season this is an up or out year for cam newton he's either going to play well enough that he earns himself a 30 million dollar per year plus extension or the Panthers move on. Now, he's not all expensive to keep. I've got the contract in front of me on spotrack.com. $18.6 million is the amount of the salary for next year. And if they would cut Cam Newton, they would carry only $2 million in prorated option bonus. So, uh, look, he's still a bargain. And, and it may be that they decide to give him one more year at 18.6 because what is that? That's less than Tom Brady money, right? That, that is going to be the lowest of all veteran quarterbacks uh, and quarterbacks who aren't operating under that, that rookie wage scale contract. But at the same time, if he's continuously an injury issue, if there's a question as to he, when he adjusts into this new normal, whatever it may be for him, as he's less reluctant to run, as he's trying to throw the ball differently, you know, is he still as good and effective as he used to be? And I think both sides here have to have a frank, candid conversation together and some thought individually about what they want. Does Newton want to stay in Carolina? Does he want to continue to play football? Do the Panthers want him beyond 2020? I don't like the idea of a lame duck quarterback season for Cam Newton, and that's what they're looking at because I don't think they're going to be ready to give him an extension based upon what he does this year. So the question becomes, do they want to keep him for one more year and see what happens, or do they want to move on? And Kyle Allen's performance will indeed be a big part of that final equation. All right. Frank Chavaway, do you see Jay Gruden keeping his job all year if he sticks with Case Keenum, MDS? I think he is looking like he's on the way out. I I think that, you know, I I liked what Booger McFarland had to say during the broadcast. I I thought that he, he raised a very valid point about Jay Gruden just not making progress. And you can say it's not Jay Gruden's fault. And a lot of people would say, the problems with that team are more about Dan Snyder and Bruce Allen than about Jay Gruden. But guess what? No one's firing Dan Snyder. And it doesn't seem like Dan Snyder thinks Bruce Allen is the problem. So someone is going to take the fall, barring a miraculous turnaround, and that someone probably is Jay Gruden. The year they made it to the playoffs, the only time when Jay Gruden was the head coach, they struggled early on, and there was actually 
a preliminary effort to identify potential interim coaching candidates in the event that a change needed to be made during the bye week. They didn't do that. They began to turn it around. They made it to the playoffs. They lost to the Packers. That was 2015. That was a long time ago. And that's it for Jay Gruden as a head coach in Washington. And, and I got the impression, and I'm always intrigued, MDS. I mentioned this today on PFT Live. I'm intrigued by the things that the broadcast crew will say in garbage time, and for a while there in the third quarter, it was feeling like garbage time because Washington was not yet making it an interesting game. The speculation that Jay Gruden's not going to switch from Keenum to Haskins, and that's not going to happen until Gruden is fired, and maybe he'll get fired. I mean, Booger McFarland is saying these things as the culmination of a couple of days in town, meeting with the team, talking to people, being at practice, and you pick up a sense of what an organization is thinking through that process. And it's always kind of dangerous to read too much into the speculations of someone who's in that spot. But the reality is Booger McFarlane was in that spot and the rest of us weren't. And he felt comfortable saying during a nationally televised broadcast that this may be where it's heading. And uh, maybe that is indeed where it's heading. There is a short week game coming up week eight at Minnesota. Mini buy on the back end would be a perfect opportunity to get an interim coach up to speed. They have Bill Callahan on staff there, and then they have a buy a few weeks after that. Those are the spots to watch. But again, that's what a normal team would do. Dysfunctional team, hell, maybe they'd fire him on a short week like this and go from a Monday night into a Sunday with a, a new head coach uh, to put Dwayne Haskins on the field against Daniel Jones. Although I have a feeling if it hasn't happened by late Tuesday afternoon, it's not going to happen. But again, with Washington, the, uh, the football equivalent of stirring the Gatorade with the giant stack of cups wrapped in plastic can happen at any given time. All right, a question from Leapers 500. What do you make of the Bridgewater Saints? Is he the perfectly named interim Bridgewater to get them to Drew Brees' return, or was that win in Seattle fluky? I lean toward the former. What was your thought, MDS, on Teddy Bridgewater returning as a starter and looking like the guy who had real promise in 2014 and 2015 in Minnesota? Well, I think a key difference between Teddy Bridgewater and Drew Brees is I don't see Teddy Bridgewater having that confidence throwing into tight windows downfield. And I thought the Saints got away with that on Sunday against the Seahawks. I'm not sure they're going to be able to get away with it week after week if Drew Brees is out, say, half the season with that hand injury. So I'm not real high on the Saints until I see more from Teddy Bridgewater. Uh, It'll be interesting to see what that offense looks like. But I think the step down from Brees to Bridgewater may prove to be pretty significant and may prove to be more than the Saints can overcome. Yeah, and look, I think every win that you get with Drew Brees out is money in the bank. And it's going to help you when Brees comes back and your back's against the wall and your window has narrowed because you've lost games that maybe you would have won if Breeze was there. But, I, look, Bridgewater did exactly what he was supposed to do. Now, they only had 265 total yards of offense, and flipping the ball to Alvin Kamara and letting him do his thing is a very potent weapon. But it was kind of fluky because Seattle had over 500 yards of offense. I mean, if you just look at the raw numbers offensively and defensively going into the game, well, hey, Seattle's going to win this game as easily as I thought they would. But you get a couple of touchdowns via 
a defensive return and a special teams return and it makes the difference and the Saints win and you know maybe they can harness that magic week in and week out and I know they they really want to get the Cowboys after what happened last year in Dallas they really wanted to see them in the postseason but I don't think Teddy Bridgewater and Taysom Hill will be able to uh to, to deal with that Dallas Cowboys team and help score enough points. But, but I was encouraged, and here's where I'm most encouraged, that Sean Payton has a vision for what that team is going to be when Drew Brees retires. And maybe Teddy Bridgewater will be the guy who can take those plays that Sean Payton draws up and make it work. But they need to use Taysom Hill a little bit more. And I'm surprised Taysom Hill didn't throw a pass. You see Taysom Hill throw passes when Drew Brees is the starter MDS. How surprised were you that we did not see a single pass attempt from Taysom Hill? Yeah, I was quite surprised. And the fact that Sean Payton during the week wouldn't even name Teddy Bridgewater the quarterback, he was almost implying that we might have two quarterbacks. We go we go one drive Bridgewater, next drive Hill, something like that. Um, turned out not to be that at all. Turned out to be Teddy Bridgewater running the offense and Taysom Hill not doing a whole lot. I would be interested to see what happens if the Saints just give Taysom Hill a series and say, you're our quarterback for this series. Teddy Bridgewater is going to be on the sideline, and we want to see what you can do to provide a spark. I think that would be an interesting way to go about it, and I was surprised we didn't see something like that. Yeah, especially because if you use both of those guys, you put pressure on the defense to prepare for both guys. It dilutes their ability to be ready for uh, whoever actually plays. And maybe the okey-doke, the rope-a-dope for, for the first week of this experiment was make them think they were going to see Taysom Hill and have them waste time getting ready for Taysom Hill. And now maybe this week against Dallas, we'll see some more Taysom Hill. But uh, I, I like the idea of using both guys. Uh, Chris Sims' best argument for not using Hill is, hey, he's the backup now. He needs to be ready to go in the event Teddy Bridgewater gets injured. Well, that's fine. But, you know, you still need to use Taysom Hill to compliment Teddy Bridgewater and put maximum pressure on the opposing defense. Here's a question from Fittison Kane. Is Russell Wilson a Hall of Fame lock, or does the style of the Seahawks offense hold him back, MBS? Uh, I don't think he's a Hall of Fame lock right now, but I would expect him to get there based on, from all indications, he thinks he has several more years. He just signed a big new contract. He doesn't seem to be going anywhere anytime soon and I think he although he's never going to put up Tom Brady Drew Brees Peyton Manning type passing numbers I think he's going to end up with a career where he of course already has one Super Bowl ring maybe he'll get more he'll have pretty good career numbers and he'll have a lot of big wins under his belt so I wouldn't call him a Hall of Fame lock but I would call him more likely than not to make it yeah, I agree with you, too. He has told me he wants to play until he's 45. He recently reiterated that. He's only 30 right now. And I, look, he's got one Super Bowl ring. He should have two, but for that fateful play call at the end of Super Bowl 49. I think if he already had two, he would be a lock, or at least on his way to compiling the statistics necessary. He's got to play a sufficiently long enough time. I look at championships, longevity, dominance, and stats 
as the four kind of loose factors that determine Hall of Fame qualification. He's got the one championship. He apparently will have the longevity. I don't know statistically where he's going to rack up when it's all said and done. He's never really had the dominance, though. We never mention him as a serious MVP candidate. He was on the extended list last week. They lost on Sunday. That kind of knocks him off. Right now, I think it's the quarterbacks from the 3-0 and teams that are the viable MVP candidates. But Russell Wilson can get back into that conversation. But I think you need to be a serious MVP candidate at some point, if not win an MVP award, to be in position to get a very viable Hall of Fame consideration. And uh, we'll see if he can ultimately pull that off. Here's one from Chris Davis. Why does Matt Nagy refuse to commit to the run with rookie David Montgomery? Let me give you my take on it. They really don't commit to anybody in the running game, whether it's Tariq Cohen, who had negative yardage on Monday night against Washington, Mike Davis, who was pretty good last year in Seattle and really hasn't done much in Chicago this year. Montgomery had 67 rushing yards last night. 25 of them came on a play in the final drive that set up the field goal that made the final score 31 to 15. This team had better commit to a running game, commit to a running back, develop that mentality because the weather's going to turn at some point, MDS. You live in Chicago. You know what it's like there. At Soldier Field in November and December, you don't want to be doing this controlled passing game with Mitch Trubisky because that's going to blow up in your face. And whether it's November, December, or January, you, you need to have guys who can run the ball and guys that you can rely upon to run the ball, guys who are going to get better running the ball as the game goes on. And I feel like they're missing that element. they got that three-headed monster, but none of them are really stepping up and getting it done. They need to commit to one of these guys and try to make the running game go through them. Yeah, well, and, you know, that points to why in the offseason, I was very surprised that they traded Jordan Howard away. I actually thought that Matt Nagy might want to be building up the kind of team where he could say – Let's take it out of Mitchell Trubisky's hands and let's have our defense hold the other team in check and let's have a Jordan Howard type get the ball 20 times. And that's the way we win games down the stretch. So when they traded Jordan Howard, that surprised me. And I don't know that they had a good plan in place for who was going to get all those carries. And Trubisky has struggled a bit. He has not been great. So far this season, I can't help but wonder if they made a mistake when they traded Jordan Howard away and they're now finding themselves without that running back that you can go to when your quarterback is not playing as well as you would hope he is. Yeah, and you know what? I think that's a good point. They took the short term, what was it, a fourth or a fifth round pick? It wasn't very much for Jordan Howard. Why not let him finish his rookie contract? Let him leave as a free agent if you don't want to pay him. Take your compensatory draft pick after the fact, but then you also get him for that last year of his rookie deal before you move on. And we saw that he was a very good running back, and Tariq Cohen was a good complement to him. Now they take Tariq Cohen, they thrust him into the mix with Davis and Montgomery, and I just feel like they don't have an identity in the running game, and that's going to hurt them if they don't develop one. All right. Let's uh, answer one or two more before we wrap this up. Here's one from Gears of Ted. Is Vic Fangio going to be one and done in Denver? I say to that, absolutely not. Especially because John Elway has has been so quick to fire coaches. He was going to fire Vance Joseph after one year. He kept him for two years. I think Vic Fangio will be good enough. They just need to work on getting the talent around him. And clearly, they don't have the talent on offense. They don't have the talent on defense. They're not getting a pass rush. One of the reasons they're not getting a pass rush is they're not building a lead. You're going to get a lot of sacks when you're ahead by 10 or 14 points in the fourth quarter. They don't have a team that can get a lead. They don't have the circumstances that are conducive to using Von Miller and Brad 
Bradley Chubb to the best of their abilities. They just need better players, and that's what they don't have right now, MDS. Yeah, and look, John Elway needs to be thinking about his own status in Denver, and if he were to fire Vic Fangio after one season, he'd be admitting, I screwed up in hiring him as a head coach, and I don't think John Elway wants to do that right now. I think John Elway really wants to make it work with Vic Fangio, not start over with Vic Fangio's replacement. Yeah, and that ownership status in Denver, and that feeds into a question from Sean Alvishar. Does the ownership structure and the infighting protect John Elway? I think that John Elway is probably safe until the trust the trustees that are running the team formally make Brittany Bolin the new controlling owner of the franchise. But I think if you're John Elway, you don't just want to tread water until the point where Brittany Bolin takes over and then fires you. You want to secure yourself so you are the guy who runs that football operation even after Brittany Bolin has taken over. And I think, you know, but for that Super Bowl win four years ago, which is fading into the rearview mirror very quickly – what has John Elway really done with that team? And these ongoing struggles, it seems like every year to find a quarterback who can come in and make a difference. At some point, that sticks to John Elway, and you can't wipe it off. And I feel like he's at that point. Yeah, and to me, the biggest problem isn't that he hired Vic Fangio. The biggest problem is that he can't find a quarterback, and he's just made a series of decisions that didn't work out. And obviously, the big one convincing Peyton Manning to come did work out. But since then, whether it's drafting Brock Osweiler, whether it's drafting Paxton Lynch, Trevor Simeon, you know, they've just had this series of quarterbacks. And the guy who is the greatest quarterback in the franchise history, John Elway, has not been able to find that next franchise quarterback. And there is a fundamental difference between having a guy that everyone wanted, that you don't have to do any real analysis on. You don't have to guess how he's going to fit with your team and whether or not he still has it. Everybody wanted him. And your status as a Hall of Fame quarterback and one of the five best of all time made it easier to convince him to come and join your cause. That's very different from having to actually scout and project and determine which of these guys will pan out. And you know what? Drew Locke could ultimately be on the field once he comes off of IR. He did not look good in the preseason, and that may be the next John Elway failure. And that may make him less likely to bench Joe Flacco this year. And I know that ultimately the coach makes the call, but John Elway is going to have some say in that. Maybe you ride out the year with Joe Flacco and hope that you can polish Drew Locke into something next year because it could be that next year is truly the last chance for John Elway to do something before that that heat ratchets up and before Brittany Boland takes over the team and uh, decides to bring in someone else to actually handle acquiring talent. All right, we have gone for an hour today, an hour and a couple of minutes. So you get a little bonus content. MDS, thanks as always for joining us on the Tuesday edition of PFTPM. Thanks to all of you out there for checking out what we have. PFT Live returns on Wednesday morning. There'll be a couple more PFT PMs this week. And around the clock, new content almost uh, every hour, multiple stories every hour of every day at profootballtalk.com. See you there. Have a great day, and we'll talk soon.
Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. 